0: Lord, again, as we, as we bow before you, we would ask that you would open your word, portions that we have read or heard for some of us many times, but that you would illumine our hearts to your truth, and if this is new to us, Lord, will you... Give us an uncommon understanding that comes from the author of these words that's yourself. So we would ask for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I want to ask you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. And uh, our format is maybe a little bit different today as normally we would be reading the Scripture, but I'm going to be reading uh, a, a large amount of Scripture today over the first three chapters of the Bible. And uh, what we are, are doing is uh, we are laying a foundation, <clears throat> a foundation for, for Advent and for our our theme this Advent. Uh, perhaps you notice that that the sermon series is called "Light in the Darkness," and perhaps you also notice that's the presentation of our choir is called "Light in the Darkness." Uh, that was that was no accident. Um, but we what we want to do is to to uh, work our way through just what does that mean? What do you mean darkness? Who wants to think in terms of darkness when it, when it comes to this time of year? Isn't this the, the season of light? And the answer is, well, yes, of course. But it's a season of light because it's contrasted with absolute Pitch black when it comes to the the spiritual world. So as we uh, lay this foundation, one of the things that that I I don't think the uh, the world we live in has yet conflated, and I think they they do tend to do that with holidays. For instance, uh, you know you have the uh, the decorations for Halloween and uh, the, the second Halloween is gone, what's, what replaces them? Christmas. And it's there and, and it's immediate. And, uh, and that, that will go until after Christmas. But what has not happened is any kind of a, a conflation or even from our world's perspective, even a relationship between Christmas and, and what comes next in the church year and the calendar year, and no, it's not Valentine's Day, it would be Easter. And yet, for us to really understand the glory of Christmas, we've got to have at least the backdrop of Easter. Here's how J. Sidlow Baxter put it in one of his books. He said, separate Christmas Day from Good Friday, and Christmas is doomed. Doomed to decay into a merely sentimental or superstitious or sensuous, eat, drink, and be merry festivity of December. Which I think maybe that's a good description of how much of our world sees it. Then he goes on and says this, Bethlehem and Golgotha, the manger and the cross, the birth and the death must always be seen together if the real Christmas is to survive with all its profound inspirations. So he's saying, yes, no, no, we don't conflate them, but they are absolutely related. And that's the case if we are to really understand Advent. So as we enter into this, Maybe a question we could begin with is, was Christmas necessary? Christians uh, would, would never doubt the importance of the resurrection and of Easter and all that surrounds that, but, <clears throat> but what about Christmas? And of course, when I say Christmas, I'm talking about the biblical doctrines of Christmas. The, the real meaning of Christna, Christmas, not what the world we live in would, would say is the meaning of Christmas. So we're gonna go all the way back to Genesis. And 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 see what that foundation is, what is the the backdrop of what we're celebrating this time of year. So as we look in Genesis chapter 1, we see that that, that it was all good. You remember that. Uh, it, It was a good place that God made. In Genesis 1 verse 29 it says, And God said, Behold, I have given you every." Plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And God said, verse 31, uh, God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. So God has spent six days creating. Each day, he pronounces a benediction. Now, we do that at the end of the service, as we we speak a good word from God, and that's literally what it means, bene, meaning good, diction, meaning a word. So, each day of his creation, after his work, he said, it's good, it's good, and... After the sixth day, he says, it's very good. It's really very good. And that was was big. It was like God looked at his creation and said, yes, yes. This is good. But you picture the most beautiful place that has ever been. The most productive soil, the most beautiful animals. It is a a zoo without cages because they're not going to hurt you or one another. And that was the place. It was all good. Well, not all. Because after all those benedictions, he pronounces a malediction, a bad word. What it, what it says is then God then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. So what we see here, and, and and by the way, just as a side note, who, who's God talking to here? Now, if, if all we had was this, it, it would be hard probably for us to understand, but looking back all the way from the New Testament all the way back through, what we see is that This was the Father, Son, Holy Spirit speaking in saying this. So God says it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. So look at the solution because up to this point you had uh, um, something that would have been the dream of, of most boys in terms of companionship. But let's take a look at at this in terms of of human companionship. Verse 19 uh, of chapter 2, it says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, uh, brought them to the man to see what he would call them, whatever the man called every living creature that was its name what fun the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field again here we go this is like every every young man's dream but for adam there was not found a helper fit for him verse 21 So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, now remember, he's had all these animals come to him. That's great. Yeah, that's a pig. I'm going to call that a Cow, I, you know, all the, all the, all the animals he's, he's naming, having a big time. But here we go. Verse 23, the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So do you get what happened here? Basically, uh, he had been enjoying, so he thought, fellowship. He didn't even know what he was missing up to this point. God did. God understood. And so, God makes the woman, brings the woman before him, and Adam says, whoa, Wow, do you all see this, you know? I figure he's talking to the animals, right? He was amazed. And he immediately knew that this is different and it's better. God, this is perfect. And then it says, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's the institution of marriage right there. One man, one woman, leaving his father and mother from then on and holding fast to his wife and then becoming one flesh it was the perfect relationship with husband and wife but not only that up to this point in the garden was creation very good and now he had this this wonderful perfect relationship with his wife but they also had a perfect relationship with the creator. If you look at these several chapters, you'll see that God's interaction with Adam and Eve, it was direct, it was immediate. That was their normal way of communing with one another before the great fall. One more thing about the place and The companion and the communion. That was all by grace. Say, well, what do you you mean it was by grace? Well, here's what we mean by that. Grace is receiving what we what we cannot earn and what we don't deserve. And that's what they had at that point. Adam and Eve, they had it all. And it was all by grace. It's important to realize as we come to what happens next. Because then it went bad. And that's what we call the fall. That's the darkness that mankind was plunged into. In chapter three, We read, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? So what's happening? Well, Satan begins by implanting a seed of doubt. Did God really say... Satan knew that God had really said that. Which, by the way, he tried the same thing later with Jesus in his temptation. If you're the son of God, he knew he was the son of God. And so you can know that he'll do that with us too. Trying to implant doubt over things that he actually knows are absolutely true to cause doubt in our mind. In verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So Eve shows that she really understands the conditions here. Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. So now... Satan ratchets it up. He, he doesn't just cast doubt or, or question. He lies. He completely contradicts uh, the truth with an outright lie. Here's what he said. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan plays on that... Curious quest for for knowledge, what some have called experiential knowledge, as opposed to God telling them about it. But what Satan told her was a half truth. Verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was, catch these three things, that what it was, it was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was, be de- uh, was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So there we see just that illustration of the attractiveness of, of sin. Good for food. What do we sometimes call that? The lust of the flesh. A delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes, desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. And she believed Satan's lie, and man went along, and they ate. By the way, the sin. Had already taken place when she believed Satan rather than God. That was just the follow through, the eating part. The man goes along. He's not fulfilling his role rather than protecting the woman. Adam's silent. And he goes along with it. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So the first result then, and this is as, as mankind, so just these two, but Adam's our representative, so his choice becomes our choice. The first result is shame for that which had been good and beautiful now it's replaced by shame and they tried to cover themselves they didn't do a good job but they tried they thought they could fix it which goes back to man always thinking we can get our, our own way back to god That if I just do this or that, I can get to God. And then verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, God knew where they were. He wasn't literally saying, I can't find you. What he was saying was, why are you hiding? He knew that as well. Verse 10, and he, as Adam, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat, the man said. The woman who you gave uh, to, me, to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. How perverted already did they become? The man blames the woman, but he not only blames the woman, he blames God for giving him the woman. So the blame game begins, and then the woman blames the serpent. She was closer to the truth than, than he was. And then what we see is God pronouncing the curse this is the darkness that they've been plunged into and god tells them okay this is your future in verse 14 of chapter 3 the lord god said to the serpent because you've done this cursed are you above all livestock above all beasts of the field on your belly you shall go and dust uh, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life So God begins with the tool of Satan, the serpent, even though he was passively used. So when you see a snake slithering on its belly, which by the way, all snakes are deadly... They're not all poisonous, but as far as I'm concerned, they're all, they're all deadly. And I know some of you love snakes. But when we see a snake on its belly, we should be reminded literally of Satan's eventual defeat. That's why he's there, as a sign, right before you kill that snake. Right? So, <laughs> and then verse, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We're going to return to this. Verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So we see God's blessing and judgment that fell on women because of the fall, the blessing that she will bring forth children. And through that, the Savior will come. What a blessing that God would use a woman in that way. But the judgment, it's going to be in pain. The pain is in doing what God commanded in Genesis 1, to be fruitful and multiply. In other words, that which was natural, that which was all very good, becomes toilsome, becomes hard, becomes a reminder that that there is a judgment in place. And the last part of that, in terms of uh, your desire shall be for your husband, uh, many would see that as just an over-dependence on a husband at this point. Verse 17 and to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You know, basically, because you were there, you were silent. What I, where I, uh, which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you, you shall eat bread. And we looked at this a few weeks ago when we were talking about work and, and how that which God made us to do becomes difficult because of the fallen world that we live in. It says, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There it's talking about death. Immediate death. Experienced a separation from God. Physical death, where the soul is torn from the body. Not the way we were made to be. That's why it's so difficult. An eternal death. Separated from God forever. All of those Are a description of how the world was cursed after the fall. All of those are the world being plunged into darkness. What would make it right? Let's go back because in this pronouncement is the promise that there's going to be a fix. That this is, this is what you've brought into this world, but this isn't the end of the story. It's not a quick fix. It's not an easy fix. But it's an eventual one, and it will be a permanent fix. So when we see evil in the world, when we see sickness and suffering, when we see our own bodies winding down, When we see death, two reactions from a biblical perspective. One is, this is not the way it's supposed to be. That's why uh, grief is such a hard thing to go through. Because originally we weren't created that way. This is not the way it's supposed to be. But the other thing is, this is not the way it will be. What's going to change it? Well, back in Genesis 3, verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. By the way, 3.15 is is called, if you're writing notes or whatever, um, and we don't use this term other than theologically usually, uh, the proto-evangelium. And all that means is the first gospel The first time we see the gospel right here in Genesis, right on the heels of the fall. I'll put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. Woman was first seduced. Man in his pride blamed the woman, but the woman shall provide the one who will be salvation. So, we see the, the fall, the creation, the fall, and here is the, the first gospel, and he goes on and says, and between your offspring and her offspring, so he's saying that, that there will be that between Satan and Christ, he, Christ, shall bruise your head, and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel, A bruised heel hurts. If you've ever had one, you know that. You will limp. It will affect you. It's not good. But in this case, a bruised head is fatal. And that's what he's saying. The bruised heel is the cross. But then he walked out of the tomb. And ultimately, he will crush the head of Satan. It was all—it was crushed then. Satan knows it, but there will come a time when it will be permanent, and it will be finalized. Satan thought that he was destroying Christ, but he had only bruised his heel. While he was uh, waiting in a Nazi prison cell in 1943, a few weeks before Advent, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a friend. He said this, a prison cell in which one waits, hopes, does various unessential things, and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent. You see what he was saying? Here I am inside the cell. I can't do anything. I'm trying to live my little life, whatever is permitted of me. But I, I don't have any any hope of, of freedom unless someone from the outside opens the prison cell. And he's he's saying to his friend, that's not a bad picture of Advent. That's really where, where we are in terms of what we're celebrating, that it is absolute darkness that we have been plunged into and we can't turn the light back on. Shows us we're helpless unless someone comes to help. Adam and Eve couldn't cover their own shame. They tried to unsuccessfully, and so God covered their shame by shedding the blood of an animal to cover them with animal skins that was foreshadowing that he would cover our shame by the shedding of blood. And that's the gospel that we see here. As they stood now outside of the glorious paradise that they had experienced, and they began to experience the fallen world, their hope, their only hope, was for the coming Messiah, the promise from Genesis 3.15 that the rest of the Bible then begins to fulfill, and that's why Christmas was needed, and that's our hope as well. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that though the world was plunged into darkness and mankind was, that though there was no hope for mankind to save itself, that you did not leave. You did not leave us without hope. And so, Lord, will you, even today, For those who have come here in need of hope, those who are in need of encouragement, will you, Lord, use your word to encourage us that you have done everything necessary so that we can have peace with you. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.